0: From Central Source and the Fifth M Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I am your host and overlord of this podcast, Charlie Taylor. Hello. <laughs> 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 I also edit this podcast, as you guys uh, know, unless you're day one welcome on that front. Uh, with me, I have uh, Mr. Nicky Beck. How are you doing?
1: What up? I can't believe you just called yourself an overlord. Um, <laughs> that is uh, that's Supervised. Quite, quite the, the uh, slip. self-describing term. <laughs> self-report, self-report. <laughs> that's, that's the most Charles thing that you've ever said about yourself. I'll say the most <laughs> British thing you've ever said about yourself. I don't think an American would ever barely, call himself an overlord. Barely.
2: He's usually Unless in the background really into
1: Lord of the Rings.
2: He's usually in the background. He's got to <laughs> he's got to let the people know.
1: <laughs> I get it. Uh, but anyway, I'm good. Um, yeah, I'm Mickey Hellerback again, writer for Central Sauce. Uh, promo about myself. I realized last time when I was listening, I didn't um, I don't think I've talked about my column that's kind of been the most exciting writing thing that I've been doing um, lately, which is called The Producer's Voice and is for Guap magazine. Um, it's basically talking to producers and putting them as the artist in, in their own right, really, uh, not as just the, the producer behind the artist that they're producing for. Um, so presenting them that way, uh, giving a full kind of condensed breakdown of their, their producer journey, and then talking to each of the producers about, uh, three of the, my favorite instrumentals done by them um and we've got nine so far and we're i'm about to go into my 10th week doing it um so definitely check it out again on guap mag and it's called the producer's voice bang
0: in bang in and Halin now from the east coast from the city <laughs> whoa, whoa. of boston boston mr <laughs> brandon hill <How's laughs> Boston.
2: yeah brandon hill uh managing editor at central sauce you can find me on twitter at Hoopla Hill, and subscribe to that newsletter at the link in my bio. And I do have something to promote this time. Uh, I just wrote a featured artist profile on a Sudanese artist named Hoosh. Uh, I interviewed him about his album, Everything's Going to Be Alright, which is this really, really nice, like, acoustic uh, R&B, hip-hop type album um, that really conceptualizes the idea of leaving home. Uh, which is one of the reasons the album obviously hit so strong for me. As Charlie said, I just recently moved to Boston. Um, so I you know, sort of interviewed him about the album, about the concepts of home. Uh, we had a great talk, and I broke it down on that piece. You can check it out on Central Sauce.
0: That's what's up. And in a more serious intro, I'm Charlie Taylor. I am director of the 5th M Podcast Network, and head through this podcast and several others, of which you can find in the full description for all six, for all six and with that said, we shall hop into uh what we've been listening to recently. Uh back to Brandon. What you got?
2: Uh I'm going to I'm just going to repeat what Tyler said last week that Cautious Clay album is just fantastic, really fantastic. And I actually just got the record too and I haven't spun it yet. Literally just got it shipped here today. Should have done an unboxing for you. But <clears throat> yeah. I mean that album has just been
1: on repeat for real.
0: Uh-huh. But
1: you're not gonna do uh, what Tyler did last week and give me credit for showing you the album. That's cool. Uh-uh.
0: I don't. I don't think you did.
1: I think.
2: You, I think it was on my radar before you mentioned it. I don't, it's. It's. It's a few weeks now, so I don't remember. I the, uh...
1: think that's a bit of a white lie, but that's okay. <laughs> you can say you liked it on your own terms. But shouts, cautious clay.
2: <laughs> yeah, for real, for real. Uh,
0: Mickey will been spinning.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, well we were talking about it a little bit, me and Charlie, in our group chat yesterday, but um. The second album by Dave, uh, is is pretty fire. Um, I think. Me and Charlie have a, a few little disagreements about w- some songs that I think are better than he thinks. But I think overall, as like a follow up, especially to Psychodrama, um, I think he really delivers. Uh, it's I I think Dave really um, I I hope he gets the real credit for the kind of type of album that he makes because I think it really distinguishes him in not just like the UK sphere of rap but the general sphere of rap and kind of the, the depth that he really puts into, um, the kind of the arc or the composition of the pieces. Uh, and this one is like, is not as directly conceptual, but he still kind of like gives you a very cinematic view of where he's at and where he's come from and what he's kind of mentally processing. Um, but in more of like a, I, I was thinking about it just cause, um, i've been listening to a lot of jay-z lately too um but it feels very much like where like reasonable doubt was dave's psychodrama and like this second project feels even though like volume two came in between but very much feels like a little blueprinty where it's like still very on some level um you know coming from a place of like showing where a person is at but not as directly like this is the full direct like i'm doing a scripted storyline thing um which obviously that's like a really insane comparison, but um, yeah, I, I I fuck with the album a lot.
0: Yeah, definitely, I uh, highly agree. Um, uh, I've been listening to that uh, that uh, that new Donda. Oh wait. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, actually, I see it's a good shout because I usually obviously do this on DITD in it, so I feel like I'm no point talking about extensively but uh uh that new uh since people since we constantly talk about uh r&b in our chats uh leon bridges oh uh gold dig- uh gold digger sound banger banger now that's that ladies and gentlemen some rb right there for you go spin that that's that's a that's a heater right there man like, I've, I've i've just he hasn't missed so far honestly he hasn't missed like the coming home was a very uh you know throwback sam cook kind of vibe you know uh the uh, good thing was more uh, uh, uh just a little bit more contemporary on that front just going just going forward a little bit in time to like uh terms like american uh, the american back American sounds um but yeah this one this one has just a more jazz appeal and still has that soulfulness and very just uh simplistic songwriting that can just earworm. Kind of, kind of thing, uh, which uh, I'm here for, and uh, I constantly talk about how, uh, well, I constantly mull over the fact that I have no male R&B uh, artists I actually enjoy heavily. Uh, but then here comes theon Bridges again, once again. So you know, uh, he has he has reignited my my hope for male R&B artists getting on the on on uh, again, one on the women because the women basically own R&B at this point. But anyway. <laughs> We shall jump in to our pieces. Uh, we have one about, uh, well, we have uh, one about uh, the uh, review of uh, Salt, uh, new album, uh, Nine, which has recently been uh, nominated, uh, wait, not recently been, but they have been recently nominated for Mercury Prize for their previous project, Untitled Rise. Uh, shout out to them on that front. I um, also have one on uh, album lengths and why they're too freaking long. Uh, but we begin with uh, my piece, uh, which is <laughs> for someone that hasn't been on the show. The hot minute uh, brings in the most detailed one, uh, a piece on Whitney Houston. So shout out to Miss Constant uh, Constance Grady uh, via Vox. Um, this is actually part of a uh, like a stream of. A chronicling so to speak it's called the purity chronicles and as the actual official title um, and this is her third one out of the series uh, her first two drops in uh, May 25th first one's called the bubblegum misogyny of 2000 pop culture which was a banging read uh, then the other one was a uh, Paris Hill and sex tape was revenge porn uh, that was fascinating and but this one is uh, Whitney Houston's story shows the danger of being America's sweetheart now I am not exactly uh, personally too up on Whitney Houston as a musician. Um, you know, I've obviously li- yeah, we've, I've heard that I've heard the songs that everyone's supposed to hear in their childhoods, no matter what, uh, no matter who you are. But it was more about uh, you know, as I think in terms of like growing up. Um, Whitney's career at that point, by the time I was growing up, was pretty much all but over, and everything about her was more just, you know, whatever the tabloids felt like talking about. Uh, as it pertains to Whitney, uh, the drugs, Bobby Brown, her multiple interviews. Uh, <laughs> I actually saw. I actually saw the uh, uh clip of the one where she basically just. Shot back at Wendy Williams when she had a radio radio thing, and that was that was very fascinating. It's the first time I ever saw that, um, and yeah, so I, I, I've had a very, a very weird sight of who Whitney Houston was, and when she died, it was kind of surreal because, you know, you see all that tabloid stuff that. We've all seen, and then as soon as she died, everyone was like, oh, "We all loved Whitney. We all loved Whitney." It's just, it's just, I don't know. Just thinking about it now, is very odd. It's very creepy in some way. Um, but pertaining to this article, uh, pertaining to this piece, the thing I love about it most is uh, also, you know, Percy for me just learning a lot about Whitney Houston on this front. Um, but in, but past that, it's the structuring for me. Um, the the way it just, you know, simply begins first, first few lines is uh, when people talks about Whitney Houston at the start of her career, there was a very specific image they returned to over and over again. Whitney Houston, people used to say, was America, saying a black woman uh, was America, and down later down in the article it says a, a white uh, a white girl uh, like a uh, it said that basically, that's fascinating to me that she just said she's America. <laughs> <laughs> and uh it's also ilsa mentions uh people referenced her as the black princess die which um i mean i I've, I've always been fascinated of why america loves the royal family so much um but uh, that's a that's a that's a new level um but it also get, but then it just dips into uh it goes from you know her height of obviously the uh, the national anthem during the Super Bowl, which uh, if you want to go peep that Daniel Smith interview from a few weeks ago, um, she, uh, uh, Daniel obviously talks about that uh, in very, very eloquently. But then it gets into something that really just caught me out while I was first reading this, uh, basically mentioning uh, line uh, in detail and talking about in detail one scene from American dad in the first season of 2005, where, uh, I think I, m- I remember the episode as well, literally it's about, um, it's about Stan, the main character, uh, forgetting his wife's, uh, uh, anniversary. And he brings Whitney Houston. And at this point, obviously it's the, the, the drug addict Whitney Houston, the desperate addict, Whitney Houston. And he basically says, you know, sing for crack. And she's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm Whitney Houston. Um, but, uh, that she actually does it as soon as she sees it and you know i've seen that episode over and over again it's a funny episode but in this context it's completely depressing of uh how at this point in the article america sees her as that i feel like you know obviously if you don't feel american dad is you know the perfect commentary on american culture that's fine but you know for the article's sake that's what it is um but then it gets actually. Then, but then it starts going back, asking, uh, uh, talking about uh, you know her career mid eight mid eighties, uh, you know g- coming up the come up basically, and then it goes back to the dip. I just love the structuring of this piece uh, personally. It was very. It was a very roller coastery ride in how people talked about her. How there was some you know black people that didn't rate her so. In in a lot of in in a lot of ways, at some point, uh, everybody had a chance. Uh, well, chances is a, uh, is carrying a lot of weight there, but a chance to have a reason to not like Whitney Houston when, in some ways, it's just you know, she's just a singer, guys. <laughs> just let just let the girl sing. She's a boss singer. She's one of the greatest vocalists of all time. Why won't we just let her, let her have that? but i love i just love the structure of it personally but also just obviously the overall commentary of uh how whitney uh was brought up by america loved by america and as soon as she did one thing wrong crumbled and basically just put tnt on all of her on, on everything and it just went downhill from there so yeah that's my enjoy- uh, thoughts <laughs> thoughts on this piece guys
1: yeah i i think the the thing that really stuck out to me is the the cool thing kind of structurally that Grady doesn't leave out, um, which tends to get left out of this conversation. It's obviously a big critique on the you know, over-intensified scrutiny from the media, but she doesn't just go at the kind of tabloid media of the 90s and the early 2000s. She goes in what we would consider like the legitimate media and the expectations that that media placed on her. And uh, I thought that was really noble and a very just like a uh, holistic view of the situation. Um, it was also just based on kind of the the time we're in and the things that are kind of in front of our face as uh, what we're critiquing openly in the media now. Uh, it was impossible to not compare this kind of analysis of that to some of the more recent analysis of the Britney Spears situation. That's particularly exactly, yeah. Uh yeah, particularly uh, that kind of New York Times breakdown documentary that happened not too long ago that was on Hulu. I don't know if anyone saw it. Yeah, um, but this was really interesting, right? Because there's some of the same kind of themes, uh, obviously about that kind of over scrutinizing and having to be this kind of all-American image that Britney Spears also had to kind of hold up herself to as well. But then obviously. Um, Constance Grady did an incredible job of putting on that second layer of America's relationship with race um, and how that adds a whole other uh, other layer of scrutiny, as Charlie was kind of talking about from both angles, because, you you know, as she said multiple times in multiple different ways, either she was not black enough or not white enough. Um, and yeah, I think uh, it was a really, really interesting piece to read And I encourage everyone to read it, especially if you've just been paying attention to a lot of the, you know, kind of hindsight is 2020, everybody looking back on the Britney Spears situation and critiquing it um, to get this perspective as well. uh, So you get a full full understanding of what what it it must have felt like for Whitney to get all of those similar levels of, of media critique from legit and tabloid, but then have the added element of really white supremacy
2: yeah yeah and uh it's really you know the first thing i wanted to bring in on is the way that they structured that structurally like um the piece starts with all these great like visual images of what whitney did and why she was associated with america and being the american poster child But then it goes on to show how, you know, she was only America's sweetheart so long as she neutralized her. And this is a direct quote. uh, So long as she neutralized her blackness within the public eye. And as soon as she started struggling with addiction, she was no longer the poster girl that white America wanted to be. So they threw her out. Um, So at the time that she's the poster child, she becomes a great example of black exceptionalism, which is useful for saying, look, the system works She worked hard, she did the things that she needed to do, and she made it to the top. The system works, right? Um, But that conveniently ignores the fact that she had to neutralize her blackness to work within the system. Um, And another direct quote here is To her admirers, Houston's success represents an overdue vindication of that neglected American institution, the black middle class, said Time magazine in 1987. Here is a morality play with a happy ending. Two strong, affectionate parents nurturing their talented daughter toward the showbiz dream of fame without pain. But then the article goes on to clarify that she literally had to hide that her parents were divorced and police her own body shape to avoid the idea of being seen as a welfare queen, um, which is a term that was coined during the Reagan administration to uh, enforce crackdowns on government aid programs right, and the, the, with the, um, the implication being that it it strictly defined by race, there was a group of people taking advantage of the government and that they are coming for your money, and that that is, in the music industry, something that Whitney Houston had to actively avoid just because of her race.
0: Uh, yeah, and also, another, you know, angle to that, um, there's uh, also mention of her bisexuality and how she had to basically kill off her relationship uh, uh, ba- as her career was just about to kick off and that kind of that side of it made me just made me think about uh, you know recently uh, Lil Nas X obviously dropped that recent video of Jack Harlow and I was just like man what, what would have Whitney been able to do if she had like even even a you know just a the social media platform that obviously every artist has nowadays you know what i mean and and just the and just a different way of how we're trying to see things and how we're trying to uh in specifically in this case um you know trying to stop ourselves societally from uh policing uh women black women uh bisexual anything (laughs) gay anything uh, transsexual editing you know it's just it, it's just crazy to think about um and also the and, and another point i wanted to bring up was just the uh the ownership uh that comes through on this entire thing of how america kind of owned her like the, yeah the property side of it it just oh it just it just it, it it hits different thinking about that. I like literally just one line here goes: Houston's voice was not her own; it belonged to America. That's that's just <laughs> that's a, that's a that's a that's a a mindset that I can't even begin to fathom. As to if you 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 may have all this fame, but they they literally think, or they or they're literally saying to you, and in some ways gaslighting, saying like, you know, they don't say explicitly, obviously, but. We 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 we're here. You're here because of us, kind of thing, and just that way of thinking. Whenever, because obviously you know, as uh, hip hop people that we that we usually are most of the time, you know, the the when people just say like you know, or oh, drop drop the project, drop the project. It's like it's not it's not on you, mate. <laughs> it's just because just because Joe blogs Mister Fan on Reddit here, uh, <laughs> you know, tells me to drop the album doesn't mean I'm gonna drop the freaking album. Like get off me, you know what I mean? But Hey man, the whole of America basically th- thought this collectively as it pertains to Whitney Houston, and uh, I can't even personally begin to fathom how much of a mind fuck that could be to somebody's psyche. And uh, yeah, it it just, it just it just makes you think about what 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 was she, what what possibilities could she have had in terms of just having a chance at having that autonomy? Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. You know. Maybe maybe not in terms of like the record deal or that's all that kind of stuff. Just but just more personally, just to be able to say I'm bisexual, which he which which she was like that's <laughs> just having that ability is freeing in some way. But I, I just I, I just find that fascinating, especially comparing it to like you were talking about Mickey of where we're at uh, now, society.
1: I always think about the the continually. I feel like it always gets kind of it's, it sits in the back of my mind is the Elliot Wilson and beat out interview of Will Smith, where he talks about how, when he was coming up um, in the fresh Prince days, you wanted to kind of like maintain this kind of mystery about yourself. And you wanted to present as this image and this character, but then in the age of social media, because of that autonomy and agency that is provided actually, what kind of sells you is you showing your authentic self um and in some and there's a certain obviously there's like such a fucking give and take but then on a certain level like that idea and that kind of using social media as a tool um is something that has been made it possible to combat that type of media scrutiny that she existed within so i definitely think about that a lot um and I, th- and I think it's super relevant here uh, and what you were saying, Charlie, about like what it would have been like if she actually just had that as a tool to use to kind of combat when she kind of had reached her wits end, which obviously happened a couple of times. And then she just had her team around her and not didn't have that outlet to really kind of express the true sides of herself on her own terms um, in the way that people do now.
2: Well, and there's even there's even something about the completeness of the media scrutiny that plays into it, too. As Charlie said, like this was not just like an isolated, you know, section of media that was like believing that America had this sort of ownership over Whitney Houston. Uh, It was it was all media. It was a collective feeling and a collective opinion. Um, And the piece brings up this sort of dialogue that was even ongoing on what you would consider like the progressive or the left-leaning side of media on whether or not uh, Whitney Houston's downfall was related to race. uh, And even Mm -hmm. how progressive journalists at the time were coming up with all sorts of reasons other than race for her downfall, (laughs) despite the fact that race was an omnipresent piece of her career, right? Um, She regularly had the people at the label, the people who are in the studio with her, sending her music back if it sounded too black, right? So, when she starts to sort of like unravel um, what her public image is, you know, it's inherently tied to that. Um, And even at the time, right, like those progressive or journalists were missing the whole point of that because that's how strong this collective representation of Whitney Houston as America was.
0: Yeah, man. Um, And uh, and just as a final thought, something I just clocked here um, that I didn't even. I didn't even clock until until now, but uh, it this bit about in two thousand nine she sat down with Oprah for a comeback interview and uh you know and obviously at this point she had a rehab and divorced Bobby Brown. And it says here, uh she was ready to apologize to the country. For what? <laughs> 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 what the fuck? Like you know what I mean? It's just oh it's just like ap- apologize to you oh yeah, yeah yeah you guys need an apology we need an apology how dare you Whitney how dare you it's like oh it's, it's so yeah it, it's it, it's the whole thing's distasteful and uh but in some ways it's good that we're having this conversation and someone like Constance Grady is documenting this kind of thing and having this uh it, it just uh, it just amplifies the importance of recontextualizing somebody. Um you know, there's a lot. There's a lot of that going on at this at this point in time, and I feel like something like this is super important to uh, to hail, Um for someone that obviously has been passed for uh, over a decade now, uh, or yeah, nearly a decade now. And uh, you know, and she has <laughs> she had a whole life of uh, basically be either being told what to be. Uh, or just basically being gaslighted into whatever direction they 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 thought, uh, regardless if it was American society or you know her quote unquote team. Um, so yeah, man, this is highly important in terms of just uh, the overall uh, you know in a journalism sense, you know recontextualizing history and uh, and in this case somebody's life and career. So shout out to Constance Grady on that front. Super piece, and uh, yeah, if you guys want some extra homework, go peep that uh, go peep that two thousands uh, two uh, thousands piece, because uh, I keep saying to myself, uh, the two thousands was fucking weird, and yeah, that really uh, <laughs> that piece in particular really, uh, really amplifies that. Right, we can hop in to uh Mickey's piece and before you do, I would like to ask you guys, uh, if you if you if you feel don't 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 feel too pressured to uh recite the quote Are you from London? <laughs> <laughs> I'm
1: not gonna do that.
0: Um
1: <laughs> but on Boo. the but on the note of what Charlie was saying, uh about kind of the early 2000s being weird, I think And, or, you know, having layers of trauma built into them I think this album is a representation of Kind of the, the weird off kilterness And layers of trauma built into the now um, And so, yeah, this is a review of the latest album By the British kind of collective or group Salt uh, Entitled Nine And the review is on Pitchfork And done by uh, Tarasai Nagangara I uh, hope that I I am uh, pronouncing that right. Uh, and it is really um we well firstly we were talking about kind of the cohesion and the build of albums that we've liked. Um, and I think this to me of the albums that I've listened to this year and really end up going back to it has the most maybe not the of the most cohesive kind of front to back feels for me and it makes it a really easy listen. Um, without having to kind of skip and go through tracks. It's a very condensed listen, which obviously we'll get into a little bit later with uh, the piece Brandon brought. Um, But yeah, so the, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, using Brandon's introduced to me journalism terminology, but the (laughs) nut graph at the top of this piece, I think was just a really interesting kind of hook into the piece um I have that exactly in my notes sorry to interrupt (laughs) I literally wrote like great nut graph great nut graph graph. yeah um so shouts to tarasai for that uh yeah so it's really good because it's it the purpose of, of that type of kind of journalism thing is, is to really hook you in and make you want to read something. And I think this does this, uh, to the top tier level. Uh, so I'll just read it real quick. The elusive UK groups, third album in just over a year to be made available online for only 99 days renders black trauma and the eerie sing song cadences of children's rhymes. So immediately you just very simply want to know how Gangora is going to back that up. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just, uh, In the opening paragraph, she she compares the British Collective and Group Salt's latest album to the bright delivery, yet dark undertones of London Bridge, the song, as well as the Brothers Grimm's fables, which were dark stories eventually sanitized for children's ears. She closes with the sentence, On nine, the elusive British Group Salt channel childhood rhymes not just their repetitive earwormy melodies, but also their ominous undertones into songs with a deceptively simple air that are laden with grief. She then continues to further explore this happy-sad or pretty-sad dichotomy as a through line throughout the piece. For the opener, Ha Ha, which is the first song on the album, she dissects the idea of laughing through the pain and how they open with this idea she has personally been ruminating on over the past year. Then talks about uh, for the Little Sims assisted you from London, which Charlie so eloquently made that high pitched squeal <laughs> quoting. <laughs> uh, she analyzes the sunny disposition over a sunny beat, uh, um, the sunny disposition over a sunny beat amid, as she says, trying external factors like police violence, plus a few more potent examples that we can discuss as a group. Uh, then Nagangra closes by mentioning uh, a A quick-spoken interlude amidst amidst this closing gospel song, Light in Your Hands, where the man on the track speaks of becoming aware of his childhood anxiety, then closes with these two sentences as a clear button to the piece. Um, She says, The song's specifics are hyper-local but zoom out of London, and these narrators and their lives weave themselves into the fabrics of black stories across the globe. In Salt's music, trauma takes on the repetitive cadence of a children's rhyme, and to know it is to laugh through it which I thought was really potent and a great way to kind of, again, use that dichotomy as a through line and bring it back at the end to cement it. Um, So, yeah, I guess first question that I want to open up to you guys is uh, what moments of analysis in the piece really stood out to you? Uh,
0: For me personally, I think the the Brothers Grimm – uh, uh, Link is very fascinating. I actually didn't really think about that until I peed the piece, and obviously I listened to the project beforehand. Um, yeah, the the because <laughs> I mean I, I don't know if you guys have like looked into I I did this like way back like a few years ago just just for kicks because like you, you hear you, you you read the you know the Brothers Grimm uh book uh books and um you know and and just n- any nursery. Uh, story children's story uh, uh mo- most of them they have some really just like just just some terrible just not for children stuff and it does it does it does make me it just it, uh, it, it does make me think about just how the hell someone just took this thing that really isn't for children but they just made it for children uh obviously uh uh uh, uh you know disney just jacked a lot of it with you know Cinderella Rapunzel uh, uh Sleeping Beauty you know stuff like that um but it it, it always it always fascinates me of the origins of how these children books uh, and the and now you know films and you know as the as the film industry's going to go at this point probably just live action uh, versions of these films um how they just all started in the most dingy of places and darkest of places, but now they're just bright and colourful. It's fascinating. And going back to the Salt album and how that links, I, I the thing I really enjoy about Salt, uh I say Salt, but like it's S-A-L-T, but it has a U in it. So I think Somersault, 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 I don't know. Anyway, um just a random thought. But any, yeah, it's when i listen to them it's not just this album nine It's it's it's, it's the others as well the untitled uh, the untitled pieces as well from uh, 2019 um it, it the fact that you know it comes from uh, you know mainly uh cleo soul uh uh uh, uh vocals um you know she has su- she has such a, a a light and feathery voice um it really just brings home this um this contextualising to stuff like Brothers Grimm when she's talking about some really dark shit, um, London gangs, stuff like that. And sometimes the production goes along with it. And um, uh, terms of having that dinginess and that darkness and you know, scruffy, scruffy bass or, or, or stuff like that. And all really retro, uh, really retro elements that just, uh you know, give it just a grimy feel. Um but but then she but then she just always comes in with this light feathery voice and it brings in that nursery rhyme uh that nursery rhyme link and obviously the lyrics themselves for some of them have those nursery light rhyme links so pretty literally so yeah man it's 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 such a i love that i just love that that one little comparison uh, and that one little link is very fascinating to me and it really opened my eyes to uh what sort salt is trying to is trying to is trying to do i guess uh in terms of their music
1: yeah i think it's a great way to contextualize it for sure because yep. and, and cleo souls i'm glad you brought her up because i definitely wanted to talk about kind of really what her as an individual within the collective brings to. but uh you know it, what they really expose or um wh- how they reel you in i think as a group is they show the beauty really within the growth through the struggle so i think like obviously like a song like london bridge is like what you learn from that event and then like <laughs> the brothers Grimm is all it's a fable so you like there's a lesson at the end of them so that kind of like feels like that and like when cleo soul one of the standouts from the album to me is the song alcohol where she just kind of goes into the depths of someone who's kind of processing their own alcoholism and uh that specifically with the kind of like uh almost ethereal style of the vocals but still with the kind of like darker minor chords that are underneath it um it really like shows um in a way that is really palatable and like digestible the the person who has become self-aware entirely of this thing that they are processing Um, Which makes you be able to really kind of sit with it and listen to it and relate to it rather than be like, oh, I feel like I'm on like a very personal moment with someone that I don't really want to have this kind of vibe with. It's really the way that Cleo Soul and Salt overall present that over and over again um, that I think is really effective. Brandon, you got any thoughts?
2: Uh, I really like that "You from London" song. Sims killed that verse.
1: <laughs> no, I
2: uh, I have not digested this album quite as much as the two of you, um, like we mentioned, you know, before the podcast. But I do, you know, like you say with that Brothers Grimm reference, you see that in the Sims verse a lot. Like the song has an air of comedy to it, right? It's it's um, you know the the one voice keeps coming in, like "Oh, you from London," like, and they're um,
1: and the ha ha at the beginning,
2: I yeah, and they're they're trying to get trying to get across, like, that comedic aspect, but at the same time, like, Sim's verse is not funny. Like, you know, she's rapping about very serious stuff that is associated with London, um, and it's sort of juxtaposed by that voice who's coming in with sort of the the funny, stereotypical stuff about London, um, yep. and that's really where, you know, the Brothers Grimm aspect comes into it, because you have this sort of... Um, you know, comical, like, Disney-fied version of the fairy tale, and then you have the really raw version of the fairy tale. And, you know, one of those two presents an actual lesson. Um, And I think it's, you know, it's interesting how you tend to lose the lesson the more that you brighten things and make them friendly and um, colorful.
1: Yeah. So I wanted to bring this up as a thing that this piece made me think of. Um, I don't know if either of you have seen this interview, um, but there is... around the time of like dirty Sprite Two future was interviewed because I think it was like kind of after March madness where he really started to get known. And I mean, even the album before that, there was a more in a pop lane for his melody beyond just like his real, kind of like guttural kind of delivery, but really like as a melodic artist as well. And someone asked, just a journalist uh, asked him what his inspiration for his melodic, stuff was and he quoted he like sang London Bridge in the interview it's definitely like a funny thing to like see Future sitting there singing London Bridge um but I've also heard Future described as kind of a blues artist um or kind of a modern day blues artist in in a sense so the idea that Salt is using kind of to me or the way that Naganga is talking about it in this piece is actually kind of an interesting parallel to the kind of melodic style that future actually is using in his stuff too and it would be a very a parallel that i would have never made had i not read in this piece nagangara comparing kind of what salt is doing to the song london bridge um but yeah i just thought that that was like kind of an interesting thing that it brought up of a memory of an interview
0: I, I I really want to derail this podcast and talk about that the future is the Blue's Eyes refrain. Yeah. I've like, I, I got so many questions.
1: I'm going to go on a limb and say, actually, the person who I remember saying that was Terrace Martin. Oh,
0: not Terrace. <laughs> <laughs> not my boy. <laughs>
1: I knew. I knew. I saw Charlie's face, oh, actually, no. through the Zoom when I was oh, saying no. that with, like, that kind of, like, screw Terrace face. Martin. And I also... I held off because I knew he loves Terrace Martin and he also didn't like that as an idea. (laughs) So if you can tell, I timed that perfectly. (laughs) Um, I think it's a, I think it's a very valid, I think that there's some serious, you have to think about it in the like context of like how modern blues would be presented. And it like, in that sense of like, what kind of blues music derives from is a very like self-involved self-deprecation. And, like, it's – there's definitely, like, a flex in it, too, to kind of combat that, the Future has. But there's also, like, a very – there's certain moments in Future's music that are these very self-aware, like, I'm a piece of shit moments, and that's, like, a very inherent blues quality. So, Charlie, fix that screw face is what I'm trying to tell you.
0: <laughs> I mean uh, – uh, all right, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, okay, all right, all right. I mean, I'm just – I'm just I'm, – I'm just, Allowing it for the sake of time but uh yeah i i i'm i am i gonna need to see that interview i'm gonna need to just think for a bit i don't wanna i i don't wanna confirm nor deny my uh my response towards that
1: what well, that take well
0: but I'll button this too to say that um
1: also that kind of train of thought what it brought me to is the idea that I think this inherently, if you were to genreify 9, it would be inherently a blues album in its own way for the same reasons. Um, yeah. So I think, uh, and I think kind of by using those correlating ideas, uh, that becomes really clear within Nagangura's writing, and I think it was really effective.
0: Very good pullback there. We'll finish <laughs> show, we'll show, we'll show in, shop there. And D- didn't the say any
1: good. other things to piss you off, Charlie?
0: No, 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 no. You'd, you'd know by my face, <laughs> by my facial expressions, uh, which you guys uh, uh, think fuck you can't see. <laughs> All right, Brandon. Let's get chatting.
2: All right. You? My piece I brought, I got to scroll down on my notes, is Albums Are Getting Too Long by Jessica McKinney for Complex. Um, So this, I thought, would be a great piece to sort of have just more of an open conversation around the topic. Uh, Just a couple of the main points that are mentioned in the piece. Uh, The week of June 28th, three out of the top five albums on the Billboard 200 had a duration of 50 minutes or more. Because the streaming era places no physical limitations on the length of an album, it's become common for tracklists to reach or exceed 20 songs. Uh, the average length of the top five albums has risen by 10 minutes over the last five years, and that's really important. Uh, longer albums mean more total streams per listen. So especially, and you know, that, that is exponentially increasing the larger of an artist you are. Um, which is why I think that you see this commonly happening, you know, the artists that are mentioned repeatedly that come up here with these long albums are uh, artists like Drake and artists like Migos. Um, You know, these are artists who are going to guarantee, you know, X number of people listen to the entire album at least once. Um, So if you have, you know, 10 songs on an album as compared to 20 songs on an album, you know, extrapolated across a million listeners, you know, you literally just double your streams just by adding more music to the album. Uh, so when we talk about this, especially with with how these these albums are ranking on the Billboard charts, um, it's really that's what's driving the length of these albums, um, is that these larger artists know they can get higher chart placements simply by putting more songs on an album. Uh, McKinney persists that Deluxe albums are a great way to pump up the streaming numbers without sacrificing what you want to see in a concise project. So um, this is sort of how they, they counter the idea that albums have to be long to get charted. Uh, they say you can put out a you know, a shorter album, a 10-track album, and get your really concise project in there, and then release your deluxe you know, a week or two weeks later, um, double the track size, you, know, you still get those streams, uh, you still get that plaque, but you also get to keep the shorter, tighter album. So in summary here, you know, there really seem to be two reasons for the lengthy album and then the immediate deluxe follow-up. And that's firstly, more streams mean higher chart placements and more royalties. And secondly, uh, more songs mean more playlist placements, which I thought is a really interesting point because I can see that kind of going both ways. Um, It could be that lengthy projects encourage playlisting rather than listening to the project as a whole, right? Like, for example, like if I see a 20-song album, right, rather than like listening to the whole album, I'm more incentivized to pick the songs that I like off the album and put them in playlists. Uh, And one way that I kind of think about this, if I want to bring a personal example to it, is how I would compare my listening habits of Tyler, the creator, right? So Igor compared to Call Me If You Get Lost, um similarly like long very conceptual like world building albums Uh, but when it comes to igor i hardly playlisted any of igor when i listen to igor i mostly listen to it all the way through call me if you get lost however you know i pull several songs out of there to playlist more than i listen to call me if you get lost all the way through um so that just i thought that was an interesting example of sort of how those dynamics work and i see mickey smiling and i know he wants to say something so i'm just going to go ahead and uh, toss it off to mickey here (laughs)
1: well <laughs> Well, the thing that's like just so funny about that is like Brandon's definitely making a great point, but as far as my actual listening habits, like I don't go back to Igor at all, and I listen to "Call Me If You Get Lost" <laughs> almost every other time I get into my car, literally front to back, skipping the no songs. <laughs> but but everything he said is very valid. What I wanted to say, and Brandon kind of talked about like his intention with the discussion is to have it like be a general discussion about the topic, and I think that that's so instilled by the way that this piece was was presented it, by was a Um, conversation started like this complex
2: be started conversation which is uh definitely a testament to like the quality of the writing um and and the quality of of how the argument was presented right
1: yeah i think so i think it's just very tactful it's all like really kind of it's very good reporting first and foremost and then kind of little hints of ideas of perspective but really tactfully placing it of like i'm not gonna reach at all like it's very like i'm presenting all of this information with the intention of people will have a rounded perspective and then be interested in reading about all of these ideas so they can form more of their own opinions and have conversations like this so i think yeah that was a really cool cool way to structure it
0: I approach this very simplistically. Um, I feel like we're having this conversation because we don't want to listen to these particular artists. Uh, with, uh, I'm sorry, nobody's nobody's checking for Chris Brown's two hour. What? what, what where is it? Where, where's the thing? Like two, two hours, a- yeah, over two tracks, hours, it's like forty five tracks, two hours, thirty eight minutes. Sorry, no, no, nobody's doing that. No, nobody is listening to two hours and 38 minutes of Chris Brown front to back. I'm sorry. No, there's no way. So, I- well,
2: <laughs> and that's my, a, my, that's a, a country. Country. please, a please
0: say, please <laughs> say Brad that you want to listen. To- not me.
2: <laughs> no, 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 no. I was going to, I was going to make the opposite point. And even the, and Mickey, I want to hear from you on this. Cause I want to know how that's even possible. Cause one of the points made in this piece is that people, um, don't like, it's just not in people's listening habits in general, especially for younger people to sit down and listen to an album all the way. Uh, like most albums are listened to through headphones in a car, in a walk, during a commute. Um, and so when you have a two hour or even, I mean, that's obviously an extreme example. If we even shorten that down to a, a 50 to 60 minute album, that is still really hard to fit into your day. You know, a, a, an hour and a half long album is like watching a movie, right? And and you don't like watch a movie in segments. you got to watch it all the way through. And watching watching a movie is like you decide... That you're gonna sit down and dedicate this hour and a half of your day to watching this film, and people just don't treat albums like that anymore. You know, for better or worse. But when you have a an hour and a half long, two hour long album, you know, Mickey, your friend does. The, do they sit and listen <laughs> in in one spot to two and a half hours of music? Well, of here we get into the,
1: yeah. Well, we get into the gray area of. The kind of conversation and this kind of deal and like the reason these big artists are doing it is because like these big artists and stan culture a little bit is like a big thing so they like it's maybe not in one sitting but like people who are like drake or lil baby stans are gonna run the whole thing like if you're that and that like those artists have those type of fans um and I, I mean, my one boy, I don't want to put him too much on blast, but he was like, from the very, very beginning of Chris Brown's career, music-wise, was like a super mega, the original stan of music, and he has literally a heartbreak on a full moon tattoo on himself, because he loves that 45-track album so much, which is problematic in 18 different ways. But, um, uh-huh. <laughs> so I guess I am putting him on blast, uh-huh. but he'll never listen yeah. to this. Um, yeah, uh, but I... I think it's just like such an artist by artist thing. And then the other really kind of ruminating thing about this whole thing is like me repeating myself from last episode, which is like at the end of the day. For to solve this problem you have to do the one thing that solves most problems which is eradicate capitalism because like how are you about (laughs) to tell these people (laughs) you've been really on that soapbox i mean i like it's not like inorganic like it really is just like this is like a whole thing about like yeah but the money and it's like yeah of course so like it's gonna take the money's gonna take out some of the artistry so if you take out the necessity for money but how how do you feel about
2: the the deluxe album being a semi solution to that and not, not just the deluxe. I'm talking about the week later deluxe.
1: Um I don't know I don't know. That's like the one part yeah. of this where I, like I I don't know. I don't even think of it as a... it just seems like another step in the process of the I don't think it's a solution. But it's just another do, step in the process of the You cabinet.
2: do still get like I would still rather have the concise ten track album and then like I mean you still you still like I feel like, you know, if it's coming a week later, you still haven't had time to, like, fully digest the music, which is also something I want to talk about. I got a a note about how this has changed the way that at least I digest music. Um, Forgot where I was going with that point. But, yeah, (laughs) so, like...
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay.
1: Well, I was going to say... I was going to say, so... The thing that's funny about the deluxe album thing, which I don't know if this was mentioned, but, like, most albums that have a deluxe that i have personally listened to usually any of those albums that have a deluxe nine times out of ten there will be songs on the deluxe that i will have wished were on the original album and and songs that were on the original album that i wish were like not in that sequence And I will end up like making my own playlist of the songs that I like from the first one and the second one, because the artists generally who are making those type of albums are not really thinking in the context of cohesion. And that's like what she's kind of talking about in this piece is like there's not like that you know the, she talks about the Vince staples album but that's very like with the point of being like i'm intentionally thinking with this idea of like crafting this kind of like sonic scope of something where it's like a lot of these artists that you're talking about are people who record and she mentions this like so many tracks a day that they're just kind of taking whatever the tracks are that they have and putting it together as a body of work and then they just have so many that it's like all really like a you know Sonic Beauty is in the ear of the beholder kind of deal. <laughs> so it's, um, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I can't really even think of like a, an album that had that kind of delay of a week of a deluxe that I was like, oh my God, this is like one of my favorite albums of the year. So I'm glad they sectioned it off. Like, do you guys have right. any examples of that? Cause I don't know. Well, no.
2: I have, I wrote down here two, two examples of deluxes that I really liked how they were done. Um, the first one, I know Mickey will agree with me, is Deontay Hitchcock's Better. And that's because his deluxe did he not did, just be like tacking on extra tracks. Um, his deluxe was an entire, thing. it was like a reimagining of the presentation of the album. Um, and but then he didn't so, do
1: it just a week after either. Yeah, he did it, it like there was way down, down the it. line. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, it was clearly not like just some tacked on stuff. And then I also really liked the Revenge of the Dreamers deluxe um, because, again, there was a lot of space between the original album Um, And you kind of got it out there and you got to sit with it. And then it was like, we know there were so many more tracks made at this crazy recording session. So they practically released a second album, um, but did it as a deluxe in order to keep the streams under, you know, under the Revenge of the Dreamers.
1: This is the big thing that gets brought up in the piece and is the big thing is like, is it art? (laughs) It's just like eradicate capitalism again, but it's like, is it artistically tactful or is it financially tactful? And almost every time it's effective when it's artistically tactful. Like that Deontay Hitchcock second thing, second album was like very incredibly, he literally set it up so he arranged the kind of deluxe and what was original into two separate bodies of work with their own arc and theme. Like, it was very much like I have all these extra songs, but then I know it felt like he was like, but I noticed if I kind of put, move them around a little bit, I had two separate albums that would have an arc of their own in this sonic space. And like, that is not what we're talking about with all of those other ones where it's really like, you know, we have this set of songs that we're putting all together based on like all of this plethora of songs that we've recorded over whatever, six months. And then we're just putting out the rest of them because we want to boost our streams.
0: Okay. I've held, I've held in so many points. Okay, For, I'm <laughs> I'm <just kidding. laughs> I'm that was the I'm, okay of someone I'm, who was I'm about to go off. Um, so, <laughs> first of all, uh, Mickey, you fool! Those are not Drake and Lil Baby stands. Though, though, those are the, those are the streaming farms uh, that, that that are buried inside uh, Bitcoin mining warehouses. Do you not know? Do you not know? <laughs> <laughs> That's me putting on my tinfoil hat. I'm about, f- um, <laughs>
1: I'm about to fall asleep in the middle of the podcast. <laughs>
2: For the listeners who couldn't <laughs> see, the actual tinfoil hat that Charlie conveniently had sitting on his desk. Now, whether that was a prop intended for use in this podcast or something he just no, has there no, for some it's, reason. It's, it's, it's a receipt
0: from someone I bought recently. I just, I just had it sitting on my te- desk, so I'll use it for a prop. Um, secondly, uh, you mentioned like how people listen, and obviously the article does that a little bit in terms of how people listen. And I do find that interesting. Uh, I, actually didn't, I actually never really thought about that angle. But you mentioned films, and I and it just brought me back to this conversation I had with somebody who was like, at the time we were talking, was just about to watch the uh, Snyder Cut of Justice League, and obviously that tings four hours, and I'm just like, I'm not watching four hours of Justice League. You ha- you've got me fucked up if you if I think I'm doing that. But he <laughs> gave he, he gave the point as if because. Uh, uh, it's Weird in it because we watch TV shows and they're you know, let's just say, for example, 10 episodes that's an hour show that's gonna be 10 hours of your day gone, right? And we'll happily binge that. But when I but when you give me something like Justice League, which is four hours, I'm not gonna peak that, and I just find that fascinating. Uh, but uh, still, he's wrong, like he was like, I'm gonna take breaks. I'm like, you don't take breaks <laughs> if it's if it's turning into a TV series if, it, if you have to do breaks, you know what I mean? But anyway, it's, it's the EP album conversation all over again for me. Um but even even like uh, zooming out a little bit, you know, I listened. I recently listened to all of LL Cool J's music, right for DITD, and like his albums during two thousands were excruciatingly long. Like it, Goat yeah. Goat was seventy something minutes. Exit Thirteen was like She's over seventy. Over, yeah, over seventy minutes. Like it 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 beggars belief. Of, like, so like, was that in comparing that was that. A matter of like people just didn't want to tell LL Cool J no. <laughs> Nobody wants 70 minutes of that. <laughs> but I say that. But the, uh, I think goat win like number one or some shit. So you know, who am I to say? Um, and generally positive reviews. So again, who am I to say? But yeah, it, there's well, that.
2: if that if that was if that was after the point they started counting streaming towards Billboard chart numbers, the length is literally just if you know people are gonna yeah, listen to it. Before. There is literally like no incentive to not just pile tracks right, on. Right, it. Right, exactly. right. So, and that was if yeah, you was know people are going to listen to it regardless. Yeah, that,
0: that, that was two thousand. So yeah, that was that was, that was that was long before. But um, yeah. But even with that said, comparing with that, I just see it as someone just didn't tell LL no. But with this and everything coming round, with everything, with the whole ecosystem of what it is, it's it's kind of like a, it's kind of like an open secret where we ju- where it's you you guys know what's going on. We know what's going on. Let's just live with it, and I don't want to live with it. I don't. Want, I don't want to live with it. In you know, go, go, going on Mickey's going to eradicate capital. Yeah, go, going on Mickey. Going on Mickey's <laughs> point. You know, uh, welcome, welcome to In Search of Turnip. You know what I mean? This. It's, 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 <laughs> you know what I'm saying, like this <laughs> I'm in such a vodka right now, uh, th- thinking about this shit. It's it's it's, it's stupid. So you know, I'm not listening. I'm again. Uh, I was first saying I'm not listening to two hours of Chris Brown. I'm not listening to Srem Life three. Like you've got me fucked up. But then again, you have the you have the playlist ecosystem, which we are we are obviously all aware of, and that's just a matter of you know people just picking out songs, usually just the, the ones that have been listened to uh, the most, and they just slap that onto a playlist, and then obviously that that you know triples and double uh triple uh triples and quadruples but um even with um summit really recently and i'll go back to what mickey said we're talking about dave right i was i remember i was well i was listening to it on friday uh friday afternoon and um and obviously the streams have updated since but around that time it was really fascinating because obviously it was the first Fifteen hours of it being of being out, whatever, just over twelve hours, and obviously you know, Clash was obviously is obviously the biggest one because you know that was the single, right? But everything else was relatively. uh, The lower lower you went in the track list, the less listens there were, and I found that very fascinating. But then obviously, there may have just been I don't know, uh, yeah, I don't know. But coming to now, I'm looking at it now just just to make the point. It just it just gets a little bit lower every time. It gets, you know the first few tracks are at a million you know ish, uh, and then and it obviously based on features as well because uh, System with Whiz Kids uh, at one million and then Three Rivers, which is a hard track, is at seven uh, th- hundred thousand. Interesting, and then the last track is just over half a million. So. It it does come to, it is interesting thinking about people's listening habits now and comparing it to all of this. And I'm kind of wondering where's where's the correlation here? Because clearly people are not into long albums. They're listening to a few tracks. I know people that literally listen to 30 seconds of a track and then skip it if they don't like it and they consider that listening to the album and I want to slap them every time they do that right yeah. <laughs> yeah. but you know just getting to the, just finishing that point how does that correlate I, I I really don't understand why people are doing these 20 album tr- uh, things that are don't, I don't really care how, how long they are whether they're 40 minutes or 60 it's still 20 tracks I'm gonna listen to that Lil Sim's album and that's 19 tracks her first album was 10 so and and you know obviously that's that's my sentiment uh, sentimentality. I'd, I'm gonna listen to that because I'm a little Sims fan here. But I just find that fascinating of how overall people really don't listen to music front to back like that.
1: Yeah, but there's well, but there's so many things. Well, comes... uh, I have a I have a I have a theory. Well, I don't know about a theory. So. Just again, I felt a lot of correlations, funny enough, between this piece and breaking this down to that R&B piece that we brought last time. And it's the idea of like and this like goes in the sphere of capitalism, but like the the label idea of capitalism of what that is. And so like obviously these big deluxe albums that kind of have what we would consider a lot of filler are influenced by the label thinking about the technicality of getting the most streams for an artist based on the output of of music based on who they are. But I just wonder if kind of in the same context of like, Doing that based on this kind of algorithmic number idea is just based off of not thinking about the the value of looking at something artistically that then could result in capitalistic gains. And in the kind of same way that they were like, you got to get a rapper on the R&B song and then boot up came and everyone was like, oh man, this like kind of like real pure R&B thing kind of happened. And it's, I just wonder, even with those bigger artists who put out those deluxe, if someone had came in and, in an AR and was like, listen, I know that the label generally wants you to put out this like 18 track thing that is mo- like six to seven tracks that most people aren't going to mess with. And they'll like playlist some of these other ones and then release a deluxe, but they'll come back to you because they're a big fan. If they were like, we're not going to do that, where our tact is going to go. And we are going to do a very condensed album. We're going to talk about the arc of the album, but you're going to still do your process. And we're going to really craft this as a complete body of work. I really genuinely wonder, cause I think that's a rarity, especially with those types of artists who have the capacity, especially someone like Lil baby to make such a compact body of work that really packs a punch. I think I have a theory that actually fans, even ones who aren't accustomed to listening to albums would go back First of all, you'd get all of your kind of stand fans who would go back and run like a 12 track or 10 to 12 track little baby album back to, back to back to back to back, the same people who are listening to all 27 songs. And you'd also get the people who are kind of like us who would go in and would love to listen to a really well condensed crafted 12-track little Baby album, and I just really wonder at the end of the day if that actually doesn't result well, in higher capital. I think
2: opinions. it even comes down to money when it comes to the consumer, right, and the way that streaming versus physical has changed the way that consumers consume music. If I have to drop $6, $10 on a CD, I'm going to listen to the CD, and I'm going to listen to that CD multiple times, right? If there's not much loss in so me go, yeah. skipping through tracks on an album or going to another album... Right? like I'm only paying one subscription fee no matter how many albums I listen yep. to so you know I'll I'll you know people are more and more likely to like run through yeah. that um, there's a great quote from the article that I wanted to read on that topic too where she said or where uh, McKinney says gone are the days of buying a couple albums at the record store and listening to them repeatedly for yep. months today fans have access to dozens of new albums every yep. Friday. So it can become increasingly tiresome to shuffle through 20 song albums each music cycle. So it's not even just about, you know, the cost to the consumer of listening to new music, um, but it's also about the how much music is being put out um, because that music can be put out more in bulk yeah. now. You know, it's not confined to how much you can fit on that physical record, right? You can just put 20 songs on a on a streaming thing. And something I've noticed about, you know, how that's affected my consumption of music um, is that even, even like my favorite songs, right? I don't know my favorite songs by heart, as well as I still know old Lil Wayne and Eminem verses, because I used to have to buy those CDs to play music in my car. Right. And, you know, there'd be a selection of four to five CDs, um, either burned or CDs that I bought in my car that I listened to over and over and over and over. And they never got old. And I know so many of those verses by heart in a way that I still don't know some of my favorite songs now.
1: Sure. Maybe that's, that really like combats what I said is like, maybe the real reason I think that that my whole theory is plausible is because I have the nostalgia for that kind of like Mm -hmm. feeling Mm -hmm. (laughs) entirely at the end of the day where it's like, people are just, it's the access is too much. It's Mm -hmm. like, there's not that people are just not going to think about music in that same way that I kind of grew up kind of, you know, being intrigued by music itself um which you know is like sad but also makes me sound old <laughs> <laughs> and on that
0: on that, that note uh, on on the old on the old geezer uh we shall we shall we shall leave it there uh that was that was good uh, I was just, uh, we, we could we could easily go another 20 minutes on on that whole conversation that's uh, that honestly makes me just Ugh, just the hot dust, just the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, we'll finish up there and uh, recap uh, the pieces that we have talked about on this episode. So first of all, we started with mine, which was Whitney Houston, American Girl, by Constance Grady for Vox, and we were hopped into Salt Nine review, seven point eight, by the way, uh, on, on Pitchfork uh, by Tara Sai and uh, bottled it and Gangura and lastly complex alms are definitely getting too long i added the word definitely by jessica (laughs) mckinney and with that said we shall finish there uh what do you guys do for the for the side bit Uh, uh, for articles how how do you guys say because you two specifically always say it like brandon go on go on, go on you can do it
2: independent writers or readers who are reading and following independent writers uh, we like to cover a broad range of writers and publications on this podcast. I know uh, may not seem like that because we did Vox, Pitchfork, and Complex <laughs> on this episode, <laughs> but in general, we 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 like to branch out, uh, and we know that it's hard to see things. You know, it's hard to find things a lot of times for these smaller writers. Uh, so send us your stuff, or send us stuff that you've been reading that you think is good. Uh, we may discuss it, we may not, but we will read it. So let us yeah, know man,
0: you, you guys do this for life I did it for fun so that's my excuse <laughs> 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 right, we'll leave it there thanks to Mickey thanks to Brandon uh, this is being in search of sauce what is the sauce it doesn't concern you <laughs> 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 right, everywhere. have a good whenever we'll see you next time take it easy please ladies and gentlemen This episode of In Search of Source featured Brandon Hill, Mick Helleback of the Central Source Creative Collective and me, Charlie Taylor of the 5th Element Podcast Network. The episode was edited by me. The music for this show is functioned up by Barsity. Thanks to Chilap Records for the ability to use. This has been In Central Source and 5th Element Podcast Network production. Links to Barsity, Child Records, Central Source, 5th Element and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.